Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. In this episode, we are revisiting my conversation with Dame Catherine Granger, Britain's most decorated female Olympian, and we talked about lots. But the guiding theme of our chat was perseverance and resilience. Morning, Simon. How Do you have I? a title you want me to use? Or? Simon's fine. Uh, I'm going to put a bit of pressure on you now. Oh, go on. So in the course of my research, uh, I read someone describe you as having an expansive intelligence and easygoing charm. Oh, gosh. Well, well, at the end of this podcast, like, you can decide. <laughs> this is going to be great. Oh, was that my mum again? <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't your mum, actually. No, this was uh, uh, someone who's actually completely Never objective. Met me? Never met you before. There we go. There we go. They were just being nice from a distance. Now, I have actually uh, met you before. It was at the London 2012 parade. Obviously, the Olympics had been this huge success, both in terms of medals, but in terms of London being able to put on an event, just everything. It, it was perfect. It was a perfect few weeks. And uh, I'd work there every day and then got a ticket to the parade and I was jumping around between the floats. I mean, how privileged did I feel? And one of the memories that stands out more than any is seeing you it was near the sort of square where everyone was gathered and you were facing away from me and i'd never met you before and i said calf and as if you know as if we were old mates and i know you prefer Catherine, but that's what i called you and and you turn around you did this sort of 180 pivot with the biggest smile on your face and you just were exuding joy and gratitude and all these things and you gave me this, this really lovely hug a hug the As if we've which, known each other for years. The likes of which half of my family have never given me. Um, that was a beautiful moment. I don't expect you to remember that because you would have had a billion well wishes that day. But it really, uh, it was, it, it lives long in my memory. Oh, well, I, I won't lie and say it was the only standout moment of my whole 2012, <laughs> Simon. But um, Up there? But the, yeah, it definitely is. Up. I mean, that whole parade, I mean, it was so lovely that you were there to experience it. That parade, um, you know, the Olympics itself and, and 2012 and... and it's fantastic, especially in this country. I still meet people regularly who, you know, either involved in sport, many who are nothing to do with sport and don't really follow sport generally, but will still talk about that summer, that Olympics, that Paralympics being a magical time for, for London, but for the whole of the UK. And, and you know, whether you, you were normally followed sport or not, it was a really special summer. Getting to win was, was the fairy tale. It really was for me. And then for all of us as part of the British team, 
the, the sort of parade at the end, and they did it just after the Paralympics had finished. They could combine both teams, the Olympics and the Paralympics team together, and uh, through the streets of London. And it wasn't it wasn't something in, in advance we knew was coming. It was sort of you know decided to be done because it had been such a success. There was a sort of sense, God, it's been such an amazing few weeks of celebration of sport and incredible support from from sort of the country. We thought, actually, is the parade a step too far? Maybe the parade is people are exhausted, people have got to go back to their jobs and people have to go back to work and maybe they've got better things to do. And then we, we had, you know, all these huge open-top buses going through the streets of London and the response from the public was completely overwhelming. There was hundreds of thousands of people, as far as you could see down the mile and everywhere you saw in London, packed with people. And for us as athletes, it was a thank you. It was a sort of genuine thank you to to these incredible people who'd been with us through this these last few months and years and uh, especially the last few weeks of the Games. But actually, you know, the, the people in the crowd were trying to thank us for the experience they'd witnessed as well. So there was this wonderful sort of British sort of, you know, mutual appreciation going on around those, all those streets. And it was, it was just joy. What struck me there as well is that's quite a British way of thinking. You know, oh, we're going to overstay our welcome. Oh, then no, no one's going to come out. Oh, maybe out. we should just go back yeah, home. Maybe we should let's be quiet not make now. a fuss. Let's not try too hard, just We've, in case. Everyone's over the Olympics. And actually, I think now as well, with how everything is, it felt like a bit of an almost a new dawn, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Didn't it at the time? And so looking back, it's even more special. Yeah, and I think, you know, and and not even vaguely going towards politics or anything else, but it's... You know, the world feels very different now. It's you know, even even now I think everything becomes very rose tinted, but you go back to the summer where it felt there was there was a real unity in the country and a real sort of togetherness and closeness and positivity and optimism and you know, you you, you knew it was special at the time, but even more so a few years later you look back and think, God, it really was it was a an incredible it's such a wonderful thing to be part of and have lived through and, and experienced and and I think I mean of course we'll see it again, we'll see those kind of moments again. But it was it was lovely to have lived it. We are talking about perseverance, the theme of perseverance in sport and in life. So obviously I was revisiting your career and I watched this brilliant video yesterday. Um, It's on YouTube. I really recommend anyone who feels like feeling a lump in their throat. And I don't mean that in in any disingenuous way at all. Genuinely, watch Catherine Granger's Olympic journey on YouTube. It's remarkable. I don't know if I've seen that. Do you want to check it out? Okay. I'm almost tempted to stop and play it to you now and then pick up <laughs> oh, with you. We can <laughs> sniff together. Definitely. <laughs> Very indulgent way. So let's start at the beginning in 2000. There you are. Right to say you weren't expected to get a medal. Is that no, fair? So no. you, you weren't expected to get a medal. Sydney Games, it's got that bright, fresh, new feeling anyway. Sydney's just like that. Uh, you're right. You know, every Olympic Games has a very different feel to them. They they are defined by the time, they're defined by the era, they're defined by the city and also the country and the culture that sits within all of those things. And um, Sydney, you know, was my first Games. I had nothing to compare it to. It is a bubble that people talk about, but it is, un, you know, it's unreal. It's It's fabulous for those few weeks you're in it but within all that and people talk about the bells and the whistles surrounding it and the you know the, it is just everything's magnified at the heart of it you're still there to deliver a performance and you know you need to strip all that away and say you know we're still in my sport you're in the boat there's four of us we've got a job to do I mean we need to know exactly what our job is and how each one of us contributes to that and and at the time I was the youngest uh, member of the team you know least experienced and certainly least successful but I was equally as ambitious. And, I, you know, my big thing was I do not want to let these these fabulous athletes down that I'm competing with. Um, and I don't want to be the weak link. And that was sort of my original big driving 
sort of force. And we knew we had an exciting opportunity. We knew, you know, there is something very motivating about doing something that has never been done before. A medal had never been sort of delivered by the, the British women's rowing team. So we sort of had this opportunity in our hands. And then it, it's what you do with that chance when it's in your hands. And, you know, you've got a 2,000 metre final to um, to do whatever you can in those, whatever it was, six and a half minutes. And uh, it's fabulous when you get that chance. And, and we... We knew what we wanted to do. We knew what it would take to achieve it. But we, I suppose you just never know for sure if you can do it until you do it. And uh, the huge difference with the Olympics is the intensity and the pressure. That once and for your chance, it's the medals, it's the Olympics that people want. So it is the fiercest and ferocious battle you're in. But it's just thrilling. And we did, and we crossed the line, and I was absolutely convinced we got the bronze. I was absolutely convinced. And I, and I was ecstatic. We were all ecstatic. It was Olympic medal. That's, that was the one thing we'd come for. Um, and then we sort of got into the landing stage and they go towards the medal podium and they delayed it because they said, we've got a photo finish. And my honest to God, first reaction was, I don't care about the photo finish. I've got the I've got the bronze medal. I've got the medal. On that day, the colour was completely irrelevant. The ambition was the podium. The ambition was the medal. And, and we got the medal and we won the silver by eight hundredths of a second, which is um, at the time was the narrowest margin you could measure. Uh, in our sport and um, yeah and then that became you know the most amazing thing but it was never not once you know during that day or, or any days after that was there the sense oh but what if it had been gold you know the, the, it really was that was the biggest win for us and it changed the mindset and it changed the ambition of the women's team and it changed everything going forward. A detail I really like about Sydney 2000 was you talk about in sports, it's all about the process. It's all about the details, planning. Mm. So thinking, yeah. what could go wrong? And then you talked about the night before the final, the four of you got together and spoke kind of from the heart, emotionally, about the reasons why you were all doing it. It sounded like it was a you know, really bonding for starters and powerful you know, exercise. And then you describe actually in the race, say the first four fifths, <laughs> sticking to the plan and, you know, absolutely uh, running the drill, as it were. And then in the last 300 odd metres, the, the emotion of the night before seemed to burst forth. And you, you describe it as four screaming women in the boat, driving yourselves toward the finishing line. And I actually, when I watched, I heard you say that, and then I watched the race and you can see it. And, and actually, you know, you do pip, as you said, photo finish, and you pip them. So that emotion that you tapped into the night before actually had a tangible result in the final. I know, and I think, I mean, I, I, you know, I think to this day in, in, in all my separate walks of life, when you have the mission you're on and the, and the goal that you're trying to achieve, then you need that structure, you need that detailed planning, you need to know, you know, the steps you're going to get to achieve it, you need to know what the people involved will need to be doing and, and everyone needs to feel they have some value and some contribution to achieve that goal. And we're very good in sport, as in, you know, businesses in lots of different areas of of creating that plan and, and the better structure, the more time you spend on it, usually the, the better then you can perform it. But I think you can never cut out and you should never cut out the human element to it and the sport and every business is a people business ultimately and you, you cannot cut out the humanity behind it. And as you said, the night before Sydney, our, it was our psychologist who kind of walked into the meeting and then and then just asked us, um, you know, and did very casually, very light touch, just out of interest, why do you all do this? You know, what does it mean to you? 
we've thought about it probably very personally, but never shared it, never talked about it. And it felt quite vulnerable. It's quite, you know, it was a very emotional time. It was very, you know, the night before the final, this big, everything's very sensitive to suddenly kind of open up your heart to people and sort of, and when you're trying to build up this confidence and this belief in what you're doing to then say, actually, this is why I do it, because it's a, it's a very deep question. And each one of us had very different reasons why we did it and what it meant to us. And and it, I think it, the crucial thing for us was how honest we all were with each other. And and when we walked out of that room, and I've you know I have talked about this before, it's we were so combined then, not just in what we were trying to achieve together, but on an understanding of what it meant to each of us, gave ourselves a different responsibility to each other. You really feel you now have these these amazing people's hopes and dreams in your hands as well. And and that's what I love about being in a team, being in that that sort of when people come together to achieve something more. And it means so much more when you understand why people are doing it. And um, so I think, like you said, in the race, it, it, we had, thankfully, about 75, 80%, you know, that structured planning, detail, delivery. And then we had this incredible element that sort of saved itself to the end that was just that heart and soul and passion and blood and gut stuff that that actually is very valuable. It needs to be controlled. You know, it can't just go free reign. But if you can tap into it, you tap into something, I think, deeper and more you know, something that makes us humans and makes us special. And I think that's that's a very powerful force if you get it, get it right. So let's move on to 2004. And again, I was watching this and what struck me was, again, there you are getting the silver. So a bit more experienced, a bit more successful. And you get the silver medal again. And you still look happy, but you're just not quite as happy as 2000. Is that fair? Yeah, no, it's fair. It, uh, and And... Again, this sort of shift of expectations. So I was in a pair, I was in a different boat then. And uh, the year before, Kath and I had um, won the World Championships. So we had experienced what it was like to be the top step of the podium. And we had beaten the, the world's best to, to win that world title. And so we knew it was possible. And we knew, you know, it was, we were we were good enough to, to win. Um, we had a really sort of challenging run into those games and sort of lots of things. You know, I I got injured and we had, you know, crazy things happen in, in the sort of final year before the game. So a lot of challenges came in our way. Um, so actually, and we didn't have a, you know, the early rounds of the Olympics, we didn't, we didn't deliver as we wanted to. So it became a real mental sort of battle as well those last few days. And actually the silver on the day in, in Athens was a fantastic result. Um but it was, you're right, I was happy, but there was a bit of a rueful smile of kind of that, oh, it's close. You know, we were close. And 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 it wasn't, the, the pure, absolutely pure joy of Sydney was not diluted in any sense by, oh, but what if we had done? You know, Sydney was just, this was incredible. Athens started to have that slight, but if we got one more, if we'd, if we'd done it, could we have done something differently? Could it have been the gold? And it was just starting to come in. Um, by Athens uh, and then I did this incredible run sort of post Athens in back into a quad back with four people um, where we won sort of world title after world title and when you become quite consistent in winning you sort of learn you you know sport's a great thing of learning how to deliver on performance learning how to get the best out of yourselves and other people and constant this constant need to improve and to develop and move things faster and better and on is a brilliant, brilliant thing to, to sort of instill in yourself. And we had this brilliant run leading up to Beijing where we, we knew how to win and we knew how we could deliver. Mm. And that's why, you know, when we got to Beijing, then where Sydney was, and you know, this pure joy, 
Athens was real pride and happiness with a, with a slight hint of, oh, not, not maybe not quite as good as it could have been. And Beijing was complete devastation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a hard watch, actually. So in this video, that's the point at which the music slightly changed. Yeah. And um, you were big favourites and it was the Chinese boat. They'd said that they were going to deliver this amazing team, but no one was really quite sure how good they were going to be. And then you spoke about the power they had in the last bit of the race. They just powered home. And in that medal ceremony, yeah, you looked absolutely, all four of you looked absolutely crestfallen, devastated. Mm. It still, I imagine, has uh, an emotional punch for you. Yeah, it's still, you know, it's still absolutely the most painful part of my career. I had a very, very long career and and I loved it all, but it, it didn't have, you know, it doesn't come without its heartbreak. And I think anything that you commit to, that you care about, that you're passionate about, that you're lucky enough to find something that, that drives you so much, you invest everything in. You invest heart and soul and mind and body and you commit to it in this way. And we we very much stated that Beijing would be and could be the first time we delivered the gold medal at the Olympic Games. It had never been done in, in women's rowing and, and it felt the time was right and we'd, we'd got silvers and we'd got bronzes and we'd won world titles, we'd got gold medals in other events. And it was the Olympic, you know, the Olympic gold was the the one medal sitting waiting to be to be grabbed and it felt like Beijing was our best chance and we, you know, came in as reigning world champions and a great sort of, legacy behind us and uh, and and you're right the, the Chinese team very publicly stated they would be the top of the medal table and we came up against this this Chinese boat that was that was incredibly impressive and capable and, and fast but then so were we you know we were ready this was our moment and uh, I think the heartbreak you know we 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 led the race for about 1800 metres of a 2000 metre race and uh, to lose it in the final dying stages in front of those incredible crowds that, you know, were packed with lots of, I mean, the home Chinese fans, clearly the biggest numbers, but we had lots of people who'd flown out at huge expense and and were there to sort of hopefully to witness us winning. And, and so the devastation comes from personal, you've not delivered what you feel you should have and could have. You know, there's this horrible sense you're part of this phenomenal team of, experts and advisors and support um, and also the, the sort of team GB that sits around you and you feel you've let them down and you feel you've let the coach down and then you feel you've let your friends and family down and and it takes on this massive weight and it doesn't, no one ever, ever has ever said to me that was you know, so disappointing, you know, I'm so disappointed you did that. Everyone tries to say but it's still a fantastic medal and it's still a great success but there is nothing that anyone could have said in those those following days, weeks or months, to be honest, that would have made it OK. It took a long time to sort of come to terms with that level of disappointment. So we've got, so you've got three mm. silvers at this point. We can say we, Simon. I don't I think we know each <laughs> no, other I feel now. like it, it feels <laughs> like a we. We've got three silvers at this point. So 2000, 2004, 2008. A Shakespeare quote mm. that I'll definitely mangle yes. popped in my head at Go that point, then. which is, you know, there's no good or bad. Ultimately, thinking makes it so. So you've got three... Hamlet, I believe. That's that's the doctor in you. That's doctor the of an English teacher, you see. <laughs> my mum would be checking this. And I'm sure I got it slightly wrong, but, <laughs> but the, gist, the gist is there. And it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? Three times in terms of... Same result. The same result. Yeah. The difference is you know, what's gone before. So the work you've put in. And you mentioned as well there the expectation mm. that was there. And largely that would have been put on 
by yourself, as you said yeah, there. N- no one else is saying, "Yeah, what are you playing at?" That was, that's all an internal monologue. Mm. How long did that stay with you? Um, it's not even. I mean, it's. I mean, it will always stay with me. There's always, you know, it's part of me now. And and the the fabulous thing, I think, the brilliant thing, we are so good at as humans is, I think we're a very good survival. I think you know, go back from when we were first roamed this earth. I think we we adapt and we learn and we move on and we survive. And the brilliant thing, you know, the the sort of the old line that that time is the greatest healer is probably always around because it's true it it took time to work through that and ultimately I did heal over it but the scar will always be there to some extent but now I'm proud of that scar I think the the lessons I learned not just uh you know about the experience on the day in Beijing and the disappointment but the the crucial test of anyone and, and any team is sort of how you cope with that disappointment when it comes because I think you know, it's it's part of what I've done and part of what I've learned through sport. And I think it's so important that we always challenge ourselves and stretch ourselves and take on the challenges and take on the risks and take on things we don't know what if we'll be good at and don't know if we'll be guaranteed. And by being ambitious and challenging ourselves means we won't always achieve it. You know, you shouldn't always achieve it. Otherwise, you're probably not aiming high enough. And, and it is sometimes in those disappointments, in those perceived failures that you learn about how to be better is whatever you're doing, but you also learn about yourself. You learn about, you get a bit tougher and you get a bit more resilient and you get a little bit better and a bit smarter. And so, you know, that, that how long did it take me? It took me a few months until I, you know, felt really confident to get back in the boat and to be going forward to London and going to the next games. Um, but there was, you know, there was a bit of it that probably, it didn't change me, but it, it, with hindsight, it would have made me a better athlete going forward. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I wouldn't say you have to go through that to then go on and achieve. But, you know, to survive, I think you need to be able to go through those moments and somehow learn from it to, to say, I, you know, I didn't consciously say at the time I will be better for this. And I couldn't have said at the time. But um, but with hindsight, with many years gone by, you think, yeah, I did. What I learned probably through those months, I learned most about myself. Everyone goes through moments of uh, disappointment in their life, ups and downs. But what I like about sport, and I think your journey is is absolutely uh, an illustration of this, is the way they just these things just get amplified, mm, just hugely yeah, ridiculous. But this is why, as well, it's such a an interesting thing to sort of study because it does tell us so much about life. Everyone's gone through their own personal Beijing, but it hasn't hurt as much, almost certainly, as as your Beijing. But you talked about the emotional scars there as well, and I completely agree. It, it is during or after those times that we often grow and learn the most. Yeah, and it's um, and and I'm certainly no uh, scientist, and I won't even pretend to be. Um, so people explain this far better than me. But, you know, some of the stuff we do in training and, and especially in, say, weight training, the gym and things, some, you know, that when you really push yourself physically, it's um, your your muscles, your fibres will have these micro tears in them. And actually, you you're kind of push your body to that point and the healing of that makes the muscles grow and develop and you get stronger from it. So from a f- pure, that's an anatomy point of view, that's a physiological point of view, you 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 stress the system so that it grows stronger and better. And, you know, that's what we do. So actually, it kind of makes sense in a way that emotionally that you don't go looking for putting yourself through trauma for the sake of it. But actually, when you and, you know, winning a silver medal at the Olympics, I would never say it was, was trauma. I could not 
in all hand and heart admit that in any sense. But at the time, like you said, it feels magnified. It felt I was I was aware my perspective was completely skewed. But it, it, you need to feel it, it is that it mattered that much. It, it was, you know, it is that kind of this is the biggest thing in the world to me right now. And um, I really want to deliver this. So when you don't achieve it, it feels like the biggest thing in the world to to go wrong. Um, but actually, you do heal from it. Of course you do. And you do move forward and you do see it for what it was. And and it took me a little while to get the perspective back of kind of, um, I remember going on holiday. Uh, I love going on safari holidays and I love going out to the... You know, to go in the amazing African plains and uh, where uh, I remember after Beijing going and, and sitting with some friends by a watering hole and just getting this wonderful perspective back on life that I could sit there for hours and, you know, you might see giraffes coming to drink or you might see, you know, lions coming to chase something or you might see a herd of elephant coming to play. And I've got no control over that and I have to sit there and just wait and watch and observe and actually none of those animals care about the Olympic Games or care what I did or didn't do and you just got a really healthy this world is much bigger and much more exciting and so varied and so different and actually I love what I do and I do want to go and do it again and it's okay The power of nature and mm, uh, the power of the human spirit almost Cue uplifting music Oh lovely Who no, doesn't I- love some uplifting <laughs> music? <laughs> London twenty. Are you going to sing? Are you going to sing? <laughs> that's it. That's God. that's the only. That's the musical interlude <laughs> right there. <laughs> Q London twenty twelve and the build up dogged by talks of terrorist attacks, dreadful weather, mm. disaster, mm. lack of medals. Mm. Again, quite a British uh, approach to a big pudding. <laughs> a big event. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll never work. <laughs> no, and and actually, I remember as well. The first few days, the, the medals actually took a little bit of a couple of days mm. to start coming. So there was a panic around that. And then all of a sudden, boom, the dam broke and, and they came. And home games, mm. 30,000 people at Dorney. Yeah. And you talk about as you hit the final straight there, the wall of noise that hit you, the likes of which you'd never experienced. And also another thing that I really like is the quote that you gave where you said, and speaking of your rowing partner, Anna, you said, "I'd die rather than let her down." <laughs> okay, so there's no. So you've been through the disappointment to home games. You've got the support, and your commitment to your partner is unbreakable. Like there was no way you were not going to get the gold, and that's exactly what happened. I thought bit. we'd never get onto the side. <laughs> no, I'm just I like a builder. Oh, I love it. Um, no, it is, and uh, you know, I remember someone saying afterwards. Considering, you know, I, I'd you know, been through three Olympics and I'd, I'd um, been through all these ups and downs that, that, you know, are part of life. And someone had said, when you finally won, it could truly never live up to what by then it must have built up in your mind. And, you know, because you are when you're, you know, I remember being back in Edinburgh in the boathouse just on my own one morning. And I don't know why. I didn't know if I'd, you know, been someone been talking about the Olympic Games or something. And when you start to have those kind of, dreams or ambitions and then my, and having this moment of thinking what would it be like to stand on that podium with a medal around your neck and and then you know it took 20 years to get to that point type of thing and and you know someone said could that ever live up to your hopes and your expectations and what it must have built in your head and I thought do you know what it it of all the things I imagined it would be and, and it did grow and grow and grow over the years when it felt like it was very hard to get and to achieve when I when I finally did it and I stood on that podium with with Anna um, in front of that crowd, it was better than anything I ever could have possibly imagined. 
because it was it was that home games and and I felt we knew about twenty nine and a half thousand of that thirty thousand crowd. It, they, it was such a passionate, you know, people we competed in front of. It felt like it mattered to so many people, um, and there was such a pride in what we were trying to achieve. And I, I like you said, I loved this partnership I had with Anna, and we. You know, I was asked, I think I was at because it was, you know, it wasn't Anna's story having had three silvers. It was very much mine. And I was asked about, you know, what it would mean to me uh, to, to you know, finally get the chance to deliver the Olympic gold. And I remember thinking, well, I know what it means to me, but actually I feel this huge responsibility to Anna. And, you know, she's someone I've been through this for three years and we were so tight in what we, we love training together. We love racing together. And I did say, I'd, God, I'd rather die than let her down. You know, this is her dream as well. And, and uh, clearly I'm quite glad we didn't, I didn't get tested on that. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to put that to the chance during the race. But again, you know, that, there's that slight skew in perspective. Then it, this is how much it matters. I would, you know, I, I sat in sort of the stroke seat of the boat, not to get too technical. And so, you know, one of my roles is to sort of set the rhythm and the intensity of that race. And I thought, if I'm on my own in that boat and it gets really hard, and really painful, and I don't know if I can take another stroke, then I, you know, I could stop if I wanted to. But if I've got someone there, I'm, I, I've always found that as an athlete, I, I will dig and, you know, even deeper if I've got someone else there that I, I care about and I feel responsible for and I feel this amazing sort of connection with. And, and that's why, you know, through my whole career, I love the people I raced with and they're still brilliant friends now because I think you do get this amazing bond that you will do, you know, you would do anything for. And okay. I think that, that going back to that humanity, that that connection with people, yeah. I think we underestimate that. Before we get on to perseverance, obviously, let, let's round your journey out with 2016 mm. because you had a long time out of the boat. Yeah. Finished your PhD. Yeah, as finally. You do, finally, as you... my supervisor was, I think, equal as surprised and oh, uh, relieved. I love that they just just coincided. <laughs> you know, PhD and Olympic oh, gold, same no. year. Both yeah, took me about as long to get, yeah. I tell you. And, and yeah, you enjoyed biting off a lot, don't you? And <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so you decided to get back in the boat. Nearly didn't make the squad for 2016. Absolutely, yeah, that's fair. And um, still ended up with a silver medal. Quite a different experience from 2012. How, how does that one fit into the, the pantheon of medals? Yeah, it, it always, I mean, it, it always feels like a sort of, a slight different story is, you know, it's the, the first four feel very, very connected. And, and you kind of felt that that each step was one step close to London, even though I didn't I wasn't conscious of those early steps was was on part of that journey. But that's how the journey looks. And I think that's why it was easy for most people to assume, well, that that's you done now. That's you. You know, you've done it. You've done this incredible sort of arc, this journey, this this happy ending. Um, and I did take two years out and I finished my PhD, like you said, and I did some other things. And I was almost looking for what might come next. You know, there's something that will entice me away from this wonderful life as an athlete and a sport. And I didn't. I found lots of things I liked and enjoyed and, you know, was interested in. But nothing that I wanted to do more than actually competing again. And I went to, I had a few meetings with my coach and he was still very open minded about, you know, you you can't take a lot of time off, you know, much more time. But if you want to do this, then you know certainly the options there. And I think and I think that the big thing is, but it's not the if I go back, I will definitely be successful. It's that if I go back, I don't know. And the challenge of it, the the risk, the the ambition, that's really thrilling. That's really exciting. And that's I'd given myself it felt like the biggest mountain to climb. 
um, going back for the fifth games. I'd taken the longest time out I'd ever done. Um, I was older, obviously, than I'd ever been as an athlete. And uh, the odds were very much stacked against me. And I was going to be in a new, new partnership with Vicky this time because Anna had retired by that point. And so it was a big, yeah, the biggest challenge, definitely, of my career. And and those two years leading up to Rio were the hardest I've ever endured of, of sort of consistent, constant challenge and lots of sort of, lots of disappointments along the way. And, and the sort of... The darkest days, the sort of weeks and months leading up to Rio, very close to Rio still, thinking this might just not happen. This mm. might, you know, this might never come good. So so that silver medal is probably of them all, including the gold, the sort of, the biggest sort of surprise, the biggest odds. Or even even going back to Sydney, when we weren't favourites to, to get on the podium, we were close. Whereas in, you know, Rio... Wow, we were miles away. We were no one would have expected that. Yeah. So to actually put that performance in as a sort of final moment of my career, um, and it was my last medal and it was Vicky's first, and that was a really sort of it was a nice way to to end it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. An interview I, I read of yours... And you were asked the question, how would you describe your life in six words? Do you know what you said? No, I don't, actually. You said, if at first you don't succeed. (laughs) Yeah, which is Which is is persistence, right? That's it in a nutshell. I've got a few quotes that are about persistence. And quick side note on this, actually, um, I've done this before. where I've fished out a few quotes. And actually, I got some guy, I've annoyingly forgotten his name, who tweeted me and said it. Uh, it reminded him of a scene out of the American version of The Office. <laughs> so, so pro- in so, a good way. A, no, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I liked it and said thanks very much. But uh, anyway, so uh, nod to him. We're about to do it again. One that I like that I found, which is perseverance is the hard work you do after you get tired of doing the hard work you already did. I quite like that one. And then there's a couple of quotes from some other, one famous athlete, uh, Muhammad Ali, saying, I hated every minute of training. But I said to myself, don't quit, suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. And then stepping out of the sporting world, J.K. Rowling, whose mother lives in Edinburgh, yes. a little fact for you, did, yeah. opposite my uh, auntie. Really? You yeah. Oh, you're you... practically related to J.K. Rowling. There we go, absolutely. So she said, obviously talking about uh, the success she had with Harry Potter and her story as a single mother, struggling before that is well known and she said had I really succeeded at anything else I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area I truly belonged so this is a a universal theme perseverance so what does it mean to you ah well those are great people with great quotes I think I think what connects them as well is um people have really found something they're passionate about Mm -hmm. people have really found something that they feel they're in the right place and it but also that it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean you're going to love every second of it. You know, I think the, I, I've met so many amazing people in in my life and 
people have achieved in lots of different areas and lots of different ways. And they all will talk about disappointments and failures along the way. They will all talk about the days they've not wanted to get out of bed. They've all talked about the doubts uh, they've had about what they're trying to achieve. But at the heart of it, they care about it and they love it and they're passionate about it. And it is, you know, it is sometimes that just that just overpowering those doubts and those insecurities to keep you wanting to do it because you feel in your heart you either belong there or it's something you want to achieve or it's the best place for you to be. And I think, you know, I never, ever, when I was at school, uh, thought I'd be an Olympian. I never thought I'd do it in rowing for sure. Um, I didn't really get going until I went to university in, in this. And and even then it seems like, you know, a distant dream for a long time. But as soon as I got into the sport and the people I met and the environment I sort of found, I felt so at home and I felt, I, I did feel passionate about it. And and I think, you know, when, when if you spend time with young people, and there's this sort of, sort of big pressure and stress about how do you find your purpose? And it so matters to, to make sure you have that passion. And it's hard if you don't have it. That where do you find it? You don't go and get it off the shelf. You know, it's where do you find this? But a lot of it is instinctive. A lot of it is that even if you don't admit to people, what is it inside you that, that you care about and that you're passionate about and you get excited about? And um and, you know, the kind of question of, you know, who do you want to be? You know, that's that, you know, we, and a lot of people have talked about this, but that, that we, we're so good at asking people at school, what do you want to do when you grow up? But it's kind of like, who do you want to be? Mm. What kind of things do you move you and excite you and challenge you? Because actually in every walk of life, we need people who are, you know, fulfilling passions and following them and believing them. And whether that's politics or the arts or sport or, you know, history, you name it. You want people who are tuning into something they really care about. And that that's where I think we see great things happen. Yeah, I think that's really um, worth emphasising. What do you want to be rather than what do you want to do? We are human beings, not human doings. And actually, this relates to me to a bit of that, the eve of the Olympic final in 2000. Again, it's getting in touch with that that thing inside you that that you're calling if you like and it relates to the start of your journey exactly that finding that yeah finding that why which is absolutely crucial and you talked about not imagining yourself as an olympian at school yet here's another thing i wonder if you've forgotten wait actually you definitely won't have forgotten (laughs) this Um, embarrassing moments you know more about me than i do (laughs) i'm thorough (laughs) an aspect of perseverance is identifying your wants and desires Mm -hmm. and you started rowing at edinburgh Mm -hmm. Which, again, a little side note, I was rejected from. Unbelievable. Oh, what could have been, yeah, what, Simon? What could have been? That's right, my sister went there. Oh, it's so my dad, long she did a good time. My there. dad's pleased with her, really. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, identifying your wants and desires. And in your Edinburgh yearbook or um, equivalent, you said, when asked to name the object of your desire, you said Olympic gold. Mm. So there no. you go. That's before it all. I know. And I... And I, I, I I remember being told that. I thought, oh, I'm, I was quite surprised I'd said that, yeah. and certainly put it into publication. Um, but I, but again, I, I mean, that was still university. It's when I at least had found something that I was passionate about, and I had some great, I had a fantastic coach at university who, who was really good at, at slowly, you know, building me up towards. He had seen the potential before I did, and he just did the right thing to get me in the right place to when it was ready to kind of open up those doors for me um, and I suppose at that point I, towards the end of my of my university I was ready to say okay that's that's actually what's your heart's desire I mean, that's a great question as well it's not what do you want mm. to achieve it's what's your heart's desire yeah. and it's great to go well actually deep in my heart if I'm absolutely honest that's what I would love but but still that was towards the end of university school 
wouldn't have, wouldn't don't know what I'd have said back then. You know, I think I think we all grow and change. But the the parallels with Colonel Dame Kelly Holmes mm. are clear. Mm. So she had that moment when she was in her early teens, where she said, "I'm going to be an Olympic champion." Yeah, she watched Seb Kerr and was yeah. like, "I love that." Absolutely, yeah. And then in your case, so perhaps it wasn't quite as I'm going to, but but you clearly had your your goal and your vision. But then I guess you've got to get into the key of it, obviously, is is the fuel to keep that going. Yeah. Determining what your motivation is. A couple of things that I've thought about in relation to, to you and your career. First of all, you've spoken, obviously, about your family, older sister, parents, yeah. auntie, and gran. Yeah. Who, my gran as well. Who oh, doesn't love a Scottish gran? Scottish yeah, grans are the best. And then again, your teammates. What other things beside family and teammates would would you use as fuel? And to what degree would you use them as fuel? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think everyone can do it. You look back through life and I think there's all these amazing moments, you know, sliding doors moments of what if and what might have been and decisions you make. And I think you never, sometimes at the time you feel it's a massive decision, but you don't quite realise. And other times you make a decision without realising the impact it might have had. And, you know, even deciding which university I was going to go to, you know, you know, I, mm-hmm. and I chose Edinburgh and I was allowed in, so that was good. <laughs> but, you know, if I hadn't gone there and if I hadn't done this, and but I look back and there's some, you know, teachers in through my school and I think it's amazing these sort of formative points in your life where people will some people make a very obvious impact they're there for a long time and they you know especially those those close friends or or family who are always there but teachers sort of come in and out of your life but the comments they make whether positive or negative can stay with you forever and they can start feel you know begin to get into your head and to your sort of character of what you think you can do and what you can't do and I think you know I'm from a family of teachers my mum and dad are both were both teachers my sister's now a teacher and you know I, I've always felt it anyway um, not, not just because of them but seeing them as well is the influence you have is incredible and I and I think the really great teachers are the ones that that feed the ambition and ignite the possibility and and challenge in a good way, but but see something in those people. And you know, I've but I've also had teachers who have done the opposite way and made me think I can't. You know, when I was at primary school, I wasn't allowed in the school choir. And um, you know, <laughs> to this day, many years on, Sam, and I'll be honest, yeah. I don't sing in public. Yeah. But almost being told then you cannot do this, you sort of it's hard to then shake it yeah. if it's if it's from you know someone who's got that influence over you. Um, and then I've had fantastic coaches throughout my whole career who have very much challenged me and tested me and and developed me and and helped me grow and working with a coach every single day is nothing you start taking for granted and actually sometimes it's a frustration and you know being told what to do and you're being told you're not good enough and all those things in the worst days that's how you see it but it's on reflection and actually having Anna who I competed with in London sort of took time off and had and had her two sons and then came back for a bit and she was saying she walked in and you know the first thing the coach had said was how are you doing and how are you feeling this morning which is quite normal for a coach to ask you and she was like no one's asked me that in ages you know suddenly someone cares and you realise that amazing thing in sports where you have a coach who's who every day is seeing how you're doing and see where you need to go next and where you improve and giving you advice and giving you feedback and actually in our normal 
daily lives we don't really have mm. that yeah. and it's actually something you think actually where do you get that feedback for where you do you who do you work with to develop you in, in the progress so you know that's something I'm very conscious of that we that sport benefits from and actually don't always see that in other worlds God there's a lot to unpick there um, <laughs> sorry I'll leave that with you <laughs> to pick up on a couple of points you talk about those key moments that that when you look through the rear view mirror mm. uh, in life you realise were were quite you know, fundamental. And I think everyone can relate to that. And also, I like what you said there about teachers, actually. And I think that's something that gets skirted over a bit. And I mentioned this in, again, one of my other podcasts when I was chatting to Mike Brearley about a teacher who really left a powerful mark, just with a th- almost a throwaway, repeated comment. And actually, uh, I had a, a birthday party recently, and I actually had a couple of a couple of my old teachers along to the party. Oh, yeah. how Do you know what? It's like we had a school reunion recently, and they were there, and... It's sort of re-established a bit of a school connection. Could yes. you call them by the first name? I do. I, I see. Still, that's always no, a strange. It's, bit. Here's the Isn't funny that hard? Thing. So they call, so it's Rob and Mike, right? Oh. And uh, Rob was my A-level English teacher, Mr. Worrell, and um, I still insist on calling him Sir, and it drives him up the wall. Yeah, you see, I, 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 <laughs> I, I when I've, yeah, yeah. I've gone back to my old schools, and they go, oh, you know, call me, and it's the first yeah. name, and I think I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll always be Mister, Mrs. or Mister. So go on. What, what was the impact? So I, I've mentioned this before. So, so apologies if you've already heard this, but I was a bit of a, a lippy so-and-so at school. No. Honestly, I was. Hard to believe, but I was. And I had a geography teacher called Mr. Whiteley, who, as soon as I started being a bit gobby, he'd just write on the on the board, Simon is here. And, <laughs> and it would, yeah, work to, work to treat. First of all, in just shutting me up, but also like winning me over to his side. So we've done the motivation. Keeping a positive mental attitude. One thing that I read that I really liked, almost a hack that I read about in, in your training camps in the run-up to London 2012. So you talked about in the three months before 2012, you're in this training camp where you're just beasting every day. You don't even know what day of the week it is. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Three training sessions a day yeah. on the water, either up at seven or on the water at seven. Mm-hmm. So you had this, this little hack where... Anna and yourself would take turns putting on a song yeah. first thing <laughs> yes. and you were allowed to stay in bed until the end of that song and then you both had to get up. That's a great hack for maintaining motivation. But how else did you do it as well as that? Yeah, things like that. So, you know, uh, rowing is an early morning sport and then it's an all day sport generally. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so people go, oh, you, you must be so used to early mornings. Oh, you must, be, you must love them. And you think, no, you don't get used to them. It's just no. hard. The alarm clock goes off. And Anne and I were both the same. We were fine, but it was like, oh. And especially you're exhausted. You're mentally exhausted. You're physically exhausted. How do we lift this mood? So um, I just bought a little thing that you could plug in uh, with the music collection or whatever. And we had this massive music to choose from. And we would take it in turns the night before to choose the song for the morning, but never tell the other person. So when it clicked on... To be honest, it was always funny because you could either put on something really cheesy or something really unusual or something way too loud. But it always actually got you, got the first three or four minutes in the morning was actually quite entertaining. To be honest, right up to the Olympic final morning, which the Olympic final, when the alarm goes off, that's the, you know, that's the moment when <gasps> the heart rate yeah. immediately spikes and you think this is it, this is the day. And we had the same routine for that morning. So, right. we, you know, we put something on for that that was special to both of us. Do you and, mind me asking um, what? No, I, I, not at all. It's um, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's twenty twelve, and earlier in the year, Whitney Houston died, and both of us had been, you know, children through the nineties as well, and when and late eighties for me, when Whitney Houston had done all those amazing hits, and we both had been given separately uh, her greatest hits, and there's a song on that she did in the album that she did in the nineties, which was actually for the Atlanta Olympic Games, um, called One Moment in Time. 
And it's very, it's one of her big ballads. It's very powerful. Yeah. It's not like kind of, you know, bounce out of bed and here we go. But the words behind, I mean, it's a beautiful song, but the words behind it were just perfect for us. And it's all about, you know, it's a bit like we talked about, don't deliver the result for me. Just give me the chance. Give me this one moment when I will have this opportunity and it all will come down to me. But in this moment, I will see what I am made of and what I can do and what I'm capable of. With the, we didn't even discuss it. We didn't even debate it. We just both knew that the song would have. But yeah, there's lots of different things. So, I mean, some things are just that. You just find the, the, the joy or the fun or the happiness in the middle of what you know will be a hard time. And it can be little daft ways. Um, you, the reminder of why you do it. You know, there mm, is that. Yeah. You know, Steve Jobs sort of talked about it for uh, various points when, you know, he said, you're not going to always love what you do. But he would do this thing that, you know, he'd look in the morning every day and if he asked himself too many days in a row, why did I do this? Then it was, wasn't was right. You can do it once or twice and everyone goes through that. But if you keep doing it, then actually you need to change something. Mm. So there's that, you know, remember why you do it. Remember what it's about. Remember it, the good thing, and I think it works in every, I do it now, but it, it worked, I learned it first in sport, was to have the big ambition, to have that, you know, that thing, what's your heart desire? What is the, your Everest? What is your gold medal? Um, and you have that big motivating thing. But realistically, every day, some days that's just, it's too far away. It's too distant. You know, the cloud are sitting over Everest. You cannot mm. see the top. You cannot imagine ever being there. And then you need the small stuff. Then you need the small goals that get you there. The ones that will just get me through today, that will just make me, if I can just get through this day, if I've got out of bed, that's a win. So, you know, you, you kind mm. of also, you be good to yourself. You realise you're not mm. going to, you don't beat yourself up if you're, don't feel motivated all the time, but you find little ways to get yourself through it until you are excited again. Another quote I lifted. Mm. Uh, there's always more to be done, but it's important to realise how far you've come. Having little markers along the way and celebrating those markers. Yeah, and I think powerful. we're not, I don't think we're very good at that. No. I think we're very good oh, at looking awful. forward. Yeah. I think we're very good at going what we want to achieve or how far away we are from that or, you know, where, why we haven't achieved it or, you know, what we're disappointed in. And actually, when when do we stop and go, but look what we have done or look what we have, look where how far we've come. You know, it's that. Yes, we're aiming for the the peak, but actually, look at look at the the foothills we've got ourselves through. And actually, some days you can't. You know, you don't spend all the time looking backwards, obviously. But some days it's good to just acknowledge. Look, you know, we have come. Yeah, we've, yeah. The human mind naturally propels itself forward and back. And it wouldn't be a "Don't Tell Me the School" podcast without me mentioning meditation at least once. This is good. another thing that people take the mick out of me for on social media. So I nod to that as well. Um, yeah, but look how resilient you are. Well, Perseverance coming through. You're still going to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole point of that is is being present. You know, training yeah. yourself to be in the moment as much as possible. There's some moments where it's really useful to look forward, and that is the ambition, and that is the goal, and that's the motivation, and that pulls you forward. And that's brilliant. There's sometimes it's very important to just look back and either see how far you've come or or mm. to learn from the past or you know to see what went wrong or what went right and then there's some moments where you go just this second is the only thing that matters yeah. and this moment and certainly you know when I did my my big races and the, the 2012 final was you know, the biggest and the most it felt the you know the the riskiest and the one of the biggest pressure and expectation and there it was so crucial to stay in the very very moment and not think about what had come before and not think about what this might mean, whether we win or lose. It was so crucial to control that emotion and and that that momentous sort of those few minutes was to stay so present in the second. And that's a really hard thing to do when it's emotional and it matters yeah. and, and you're you know, you're the adrenaline's flowing and your mind's trying to escape. But you control it and you calm it and you focus on the one thing you can do. And that the only thing we could do was, you know, that stroke we were on and that next second we were in charge of. And then it becomes very manageable. 
it's worth as well, I think, remembering that ultimately there is no finishing line. I mean, actually, in your mm. case, there clearly were several finishing lines. And uh, another key aspect of perseverance is is developing discipline and habit. And for me, OK, so I played, obviously, sport through my teenage years and into my 20s, particularly tennis. I used to run a lot, but I'd never developed a gym habit. And I remember someone had said, what you need to do is, is focus on that why, even if it's a bit different to, the, to that really deep why. Anyway, and I, I remember I was at a party. And I was running a lot at that time, so I was quite skinny, and I'm naturally quite skinny. And a guy who I hadn't seen a few years, I had a T-shirt on, and so my arm was looking particularly weedy. And he said, um, you've been working out, Simon. And, <laughs> and then I used that fuel. It's not a, a raging inferno, but it's, it's a match to develop a gym habit. I went every day for a month, mm. just remembering that key comment, every day for a month, I developed that habit and the habit still exists yeah. today. I think, again, it's come back to, we've said a few times about that connection with, with you know, the human side of, of everything we do and, and the person you are. And I remember reading something about um, someone giving up smoking and, you know, I'd tried it many times and never worked, never really managed to give it up. And then um, someone had said, I think it was, they were a parent and their and their son or daughter had said to them, do you know what, I really I really worry that you won't be there for your grandchildren and you won't be able to do that. And it and it made them stop immediately because suddenly, you know, the kind of the motivation behind stopping, I'd really you know, it's healthy or I think I should or anything else. Sometimes that's not enough, but to, when it makes it very personal, when it's like this might affect how much time you get to spend with loved ones in your family, then it becomes very real and then, then it becomes very important and or whether it's someone going, you know, you're not, you're not as buff as you could be or whatever. That's motivation. And sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's, you, that's when you have to be very honest with yourself. Mm. You know, what is it that, that actually matters? And actually, is it that I, you know, I'm diligent and get to the gym every day? Or is it because I actually want to do, be a person or to achieve yeah. something yes. or to do something differently? And actually, when you tune into that, it doesn't matter what it is, but no. just be honest about what it is. Because, you know, we're all, you know, it's why, we, I think we always, I, I'm very bad at this, you know, when New Year's resolutions come around, I'm always like, right, I'm going to make them, and this year I'll stick to them. Yeah. Because you almost feel like it's the 1st of January. It's something I need to wait till a big moment, and then I'll start doing that. Um, but actually, the motivation behind them, other than I just want to be a better person, it, you know, you need something that is really quite personal. Yeah. What, what will make me change that? What will mm. make me suddenly do that? And sometimes, you know, if it, you know, whether it's you know the dry January, it's the reason why people can give up drinking for that time because it suddenly becomes like actually for that it's a challenge for me for that month. It's limited. It's possible. Mm. I can do that. Yeah. I'll take that on. And um, but it's the reason why. Why? What is it that's going to make you change? Because it's often a behaviour change that needs to happen ultimately. Yeah. yeah. But also, if you if you you know if you slip up and you don't get to the gym or you don't if yeah. you have a drink, then you're also okay. Yeah. You know, get back onto it. Again. Yeah. Yeah. The importance of habits and creating good habits becomes a habit as well, doesn't it? You, yeah. you, you get used to doing it. And, and I think they say, this has been disputed, but it's like 28 days roughly to create a habit. But habits are really important. Yeah, and that's why, you know, if you do slip up in that, if you're trying to make a positive change of behaviour and you slip up in that time, it's fine. Just get back onto it because it will take a while to adjust and get used to it. And people, you know, will say to athletes all the time, how do you do it? How do you get up every morning? How do you go and do that? And you think, actually, because I don't question it every day, I didn't wake up and think, will I go to the gym or will I go down to the river? You know, I got up and I did it because that's what I did. You don't, mm. by not questioning it, actually, it becomes just normal. That's what you do. You don't, mm. you don't debate with yourself. Do I really want to get off the sofa and do it? 
I'm not a scientist either, but I'm still going to do my best impression. So that's all like neuroplasticity, isn't it? And mm. neural pathways. Mm. So do something enough, create a habit. Actually, your brain essentially gets a bit rewired. So like you just said there, it doesn't become uh, a decision you have to have to make. It's just something you do. Yeah. And I think also, you know, as grown-ups, the, the neuroplasticity thing is that it's most pliable when you're younger and that's why you can learn so much when it's language or anything else you learn things so brilliantly and so quickly as as very young children and as you get older it's harder to change those pathways and it's you know it's the brain is slightly different when you're mm. older so it might just take a bit more work to to make those changes and to get those habits and that's why it's you know mm. yes it might be a hard work to do it but it, it will happen it can be easy to overstate that as well to mm. think oh uh, right no I'm done. I'm finished. Exactly. You know, you hit 30, I'm done. Exactly. This is me. What's the point now? Yeah. But actually, no, oh, you, no, you, you know, absolutely. again, we've said there's no finishing line. You can keep, Massively. you know, tweaking and changing. It might not be as dramatic as between the ages of three and 10 or three and 13. But, but it, you will change. And, and it just, it might just feel a bit harder because, yeah. because you need to work out a bit more, a bit longer. But oh my goodness, you just think how many people, you know, through different, different decades are, are constantly bringing on new challenges and new ambitions and learning things and developing things. And that's, again, that's what makes us all a brilliant species because we don't, we don't get to a point and think that's me done now. Okay, so let's just recap them. So, so things like identifying your wants and desires, determining your motivation, keeping a positive mental attitude, uh, developing discipline and habit, um, and also key, the importance of, of loving what you do and, and using that as fuel. So someone listening who... Let's say they've just had their own personal little Beijing mm. or, you know, someone who perhaps struggles just generally with perseverance. If you had to sum it up, put you on the spot here, <laughs> how would you do that? The floor is yours. Oh, my goodness. Summing up, challenging bit after that long yeah, chat. Yeah. Um, I think for me, perseverance and resilience probably go hand in hand. It's about understanding motivation of what you want to achieve. So... You know, I I feel you. You know, we we should be ambitious in what we want to do on whatever scale that might be, and with that comes acceptance because it's ambitious. It won't necessarily be easy, and there will be highs and lows and ups and downs along that road. And actually, by taking that on, by going through that journey, by developing that, you will learn more about yourself than you ever thought. You will be become better, whether or not you achieve what you want to do. And if you do it with the right people around you, then. I would say you'd do more than you ever thought you would do and you will be better for it along the way. Dr. Dame Catherine Granger, yeah. it's yes, been an absolute pleasure. I think we've picked apart Perseverance using your uh, outstanding career as a guide through it. Anything you feel we haven't mentioned or anything you would like to say before we wrap things up? I think what's great about this, you know, the chats that you do and the podcast you have is is this incredible... I think this the, the sport is, is this incredible edible powerhouse of of whether it's sport for sport's sake and and the amazing things that can can change in people's lives and people's opportunities and people's thought processes and it's gifted me so much but actually even if you're not going to be doing sport or not going to be you know as committed or as as obsessed as lots of us are there's so many amazing things to take from it to live from it it's a really easy it's a great sort of teaching thing and we've talked today about perseverance and I think whether it's you're in sport or you're in anything if you present persevere with passion then you're gonna you're gonna make it thank you for listening to this episode of the life lessons podcast and just a reminder that my debut book champion thinking how to find success without losing yourself published by bloomsbury is out on january the 18th 
In it, I share some of the best lessons I've learned over the last five years or so on things like avoiding burnout and developing emotional intelligence. But I also really want to challenge the sort of success evangelism that we hear so much about, which implies that continually chasing success out there in the world sometime in the future will give us what we really want, which is to feel content and fulfilled internally. Now, drawing on some of my favorite conversations, I'm arguing that culturally we have it the wrong way around and that we're looking basically in the wrong places and that genuine peace and contentment is actually so close that we tend to overlook it. But once you do recognize it, it is an absolute game changer. Please do check out the link in my show notes to find out more.